Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up in the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. This is Recode Media from Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm in for Peter Kafka. I'm a media and politics reporter at BuzzFeed News, but I'm here at Vox Media Studios today in New York City. Today, I'm really excited to be back in the studio. You might have heard my interview with Matt Taibbi a couple weeks back. This week, I'm here with Noah Shackman, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast. Noah, welcome to Recode Media. Hey. So, The Daily Beast just celebrated its 10-year anniversary, Mazel Tov. Thank you. you know, our listeners probably know the, the Beast from its mix of reporting on everything from politics to the White, national security, White House, pop culture. I wanted to start with... I, I, you know my my boss over at BuzzFeed News, uh, Ben Smith, and I was telling him that I was coming to interview you, and and he he brought up a point that he feels like you guys are kind of like BuzzFeed News, um, maybe circa 2012, where you you kind of um, you're, you're 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 scrappy, you take these big swings, um, you sort of have fewer resources in the the competition, um, you know, you prize scoops big and small, you're you're sort of hyper aggressive, you're fast, but with that kind of comes the risk of of all that comes with being sort of a smaller, scrappier outlet. So I'm curious, is that a fair way to to talk about the beast now? Like, how do you think of yourselves in the media ecosystem, where you fit in among the competitors? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with the scrappy part, and I would agree that we are like crackheads for scoops. I don't know necessarily that it compared exactly to BuzzFeed 2012. Uh, To me, we're more of a mix of... um, of like the old school New York tabloids. Uh, I grew up in New York, and so I grew up reading, you know, the Daily News and the, and the New York Post when they were at their height. And, uh, you know, mixing that with, in some ways, my experience working for Condé Nast magazines and this kind of like slick, glossy, global, smart uh, outlook of those. And you sort of take, a, put those two together and give them a kind of bizarre Frankenstein love child and you have the Daily Beast. Do you think of yourself as a tabloid? Is that something that you kind of communicate to your reporters? And what sort of se- – I mean, does that bring a different kind of sensibility to your reporting than – you know, do you, does it give you more leeway? Yeah. I mean, I think we consider ourselves a high-end tabloid, a global tabloid for sure. And yeah, you know, that means no boring headlines, right? That means the ability to take a side and throw a punch and, and you know, call bullshit on the things that need to be called bullshit on, which I think for the quote-unquote broadsheets of the world can be more difficult. Do you think, I mean, we're now two years into the Trump administration. There's a ton of kind of like hand-wringing over how to cover this story. You guys, I think, have, you know, made a name for yourself with some of the White House scoops you've had, national security scoops. What have you, as an editor-in-chief in this, like, Trump era, mm-hmm. you know, what have you learned about about journalism, about media, uh, about covering Trump, like, in this age? I mean, has your has your worldview changed about journalism and, and how to cover this story or, or not really? No, I think, well, I mean, first of all, the basic journalistic principles, principles apply for all time, um, no matter who's in the White House and no matter what the media environment is. Um, I think with this president's interesting, just to take a step back, you know, Bob Woodward used to say that the business of of D.C. journalism was to uncover the secret state, right? And that still applies. But in the Trump administration, you have something weird, which is that oftentimes, like, 
the deepest secrets are mirrored on the president's Twitter feed. So it's like what's visible and what's invisible are often kind of twinned in a very interesting way that you wouldn't see with a, in the Obama administration, which was generally more secretive and buttoned up. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is like, look, the the minor details in this administration are so telling. So, you know, we did a story a while back about how um, Rex Tillerson found out that he was uh, fired when he was on the toilet. Uh, right, and everyone remembers that detail. Yeah. But it's also telling about the way that the Trump administration treats its own most senior members, right? Like, it's not just a tee-hee funny story, although it's totally fucking funny. Right. Like, it's also, uh, it's a story about the power dynamics between Tillerson and the White House. It's a story about how Trump treats these guys who months earlier he was lauding as total geniuses. Do you think, I mean, you know, not to not to make you sort of uh, criticize the competition, but I mean, do you think that traditional media has been ill-equipped to handle the Trump moment? I mean, I, or or because you see sort of this insurgency of, um, well, you see you see those the traditional media outlets, you know, having this sort of renaissance, like the Post and the Times are doing really well. But at the same time, it feels like sometimes there's, like I was saying, there's a ton of hand wringing about like what this moment means and how to cover it. And I'm I'm curious, like, what is your diagnosis of like how traditional media has handled the Trump moment? Yeah, I mean, I think you're hinting at it. Look, the Post and the Times have been totally lights out. They've been incredible, no doubt about it. They are the heavyweight champs of the world, and they've really proven it. Um, you know, in this cycle. I think some of the other legacy outlets have really stumbled on the job, really, really stumbled on the job. Re- repeating uncritically uh, the president's lies, I just don't think that that's the job of journalism is to is to serve as a mouthpiece for power. I think getting gained and distracted a lot by the president's nonsense. I think there's been a lot of allowing the president of the United States to be the assignment editor, and that's a giant mistake. Right. I mean, something like we're, we're recording this, you know, uh, um, November 2nd, but something that happened yesterday was like Trump had this press conference, right, where – and CNN and Fox News go to it. I think CNN went to it for 15 minutes or so before they realized, like, there's no news here. But like that that sort of thing, right, where all these news outlets just sort of buy um, – I don't know. Yeah, here, but here, by here, habit, go 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 live to to Trump, and it's like he's there to talk about the caravan and distract or you know things like that. So y- you guys don't really have to, you know, be in that. Yeah, that look, look. Luckily, we're not anybody's paper of record, right? And so we don't have to. You know, we don't feel obligated to cover those things, or if we do, it's to cover them critically. Um, here's another example. The day before that, um, there was this uh, break in which the president floated this idea that he was going to somehow single-handedly with a wave of uh, hand undo the 14th Amendment, which is A, nuts, B, likely unconstitutional, and C, like nobody else in the White House was talking about this. There had been no prep. You know, basically no prep work or the prep work had been like, hey, Mr. President, I know you want to do this, but uh, right. no. And then it comes out in this Axios clip and yeah. then it's sort of repeated, un, you know, uncritically by the rest of the pack. Yeah. And, and then so, it becomes, can he do this? And then, of course, then there's the fact checking round right. of it where people are like, actually, no. And, you know, look, just to give you I, – I, I understand how these editors at other places feel. Like I saw that clip and I was like, oh, my God. What we got to get an opinion piece. Yeah. We got to get this. We got to get that. And then, like, we all took a deep breath. <sighs> My wife's a meditation teacher, so I'm— That's helpful uh, yeah, in the Trump era. Helpful. Yeah. And then we said, wait a minute. This is, like, total nonsense. And this is, like, him, like, 
you know, saying, yeah, sure, to a ridiculous idea that was floated. And so we said, you know what? The biggest story is not whatever the president's bullshit proposal is. It's the fact that a madman, a Nazi, uh, you murdered 11 people in a synagogue the weekend before. It's the fact that, you know, a pro-Trump super fan had been mailing bombs around the country. That's the story. The story is the upswing in domestic terrorism here, not whatever ridiculousness the president happens to pick out of his nose that moment. I think, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the Axios thing because I wanted to talk about that. This is this is a term that gets thrown around a lot, sort of access journalism, right? Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Swan, the reporter who, who who broke that story, you know, he was really, I don't know, he got ratioed uh, very hard on Twitter for sort of giddily, giddily responding to Trump. Yeah, but you I'm, know, oh, can I I, yeah, yeah. step in there? I think that's actually like wrong and dumb. Why? Jonathan Swan is a motherfucking monster of a reporter and any newsroom would be happy to have him. Totally. He is sourced, he is smart, and he writes great. I think they captured a moment in which he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Right. right? This is like the print reporter who goes on television and he's like – he's happy he got the scoop and it, it comes out weird. Is that sort of – Yeah. A, a I mean like, okay, you know, Jonathan's a little bit – you know, was a little bit more uh, media friendly than that. But I mean I think he was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe – like Trump just confirmed this thing yeah, that I heard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I thought that was really unfair to Jonathan. What do you think, though, of the sort of broader critique of of you know that sort of style of of access journalism, like made popular by Mike Allen, you know, maybe at Politico, that it's sort of wrong for the Trump moment, that um, that it doesn't make sense based on who we're co- you know who you're covering, and that that model just doesn't really work anymore and shouldn't be a thing. I mean, do do you you guys kind of have that outsider approach? Like you you don't really have that that same sort of model, but at the same time, you have sources in the White House, and that's how you break stories. So how do you think about it as an editor? Yeah. So look, fuck access journalism, number one. Number two, you better have some sources, right? And luckily, number three is in this administration, like more than advancing any policy and more, I mean, more than anything is these guys want to stab each other in the back, these guys in the Trump administration. And so basically, you want to get them you know, talking about— So you don't have to be spoon-fed anything to get the get stories. In fact, probably worse off. Yeah. I mean, look, and the other thing is, frankly, like, who's going to spoon-feed to the Daily Beast? Like, they all know we're a bunch of velociraptors around here. We're just going to bite the hand off if you spoon-feed right. us. So we're a dumb outlet to spoon-feed to. However, we're an awesome outlet to leak to. We're an awesome outlet to dish to. And so, you know, I think that's just been our approach. All right, we're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back with Noah Shackman, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, right after this. Today's show is brought to you by Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up into the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. And it's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. With Amazon Music, a voice is all you need. Discover over 50 million songs and thousands of curated playlists and stations across all your devices, just by asking. Find your favorite songs at the tip of your fingers and the tip of your tongue. New customers get three months for 99 cents at amazonmusic.com. This renews automatically. Cancel anytime. And we're back with Noah Shackman. You are opinionated on Twitter about Trump. You got yourself into a mini-media controversy a few years ago. Uh-huh. 
I think your tweet was written up in conservative media. I was just looking. Uh, how Howard Kurtz wrote a, a Fox News wrote yeah, a story about it. which is hilarious. I want to read your tweet. You said, let's get real. If you're renting in a Trump building or playing a round of golf at a Trump resort, you are supporting racism and neo-fascism. That was in 2015. That was a different moment. He was, you know, Trump was a different kind of phenomenon. Now he's president. Mm-hmm. Do you either regret tweeting that or if not do you i mean does that has that made it harder for you your reporters does that make it harder to cover this administration or cuz they or, or not at all i mean like do sources give your reporters a hard time cuz they know hey your boss has just called him a fascist on twitter in 2015 yeah i mean i think there's a brief moment when the trump campaign was not pleased about that um i'll leave it to your listeners to decide whether that tweet was pressure or not um <laughs> I don't regret doing the tweet. Just to give you the backstory, it's kind of fun. I was no, no. I want to take it out of context. I want to take one tweet completely out of context. Good, good. I appreciate that. It's very 2018. Yeah, yeah. So look, I was uh, in Miami uh, on vacation, on Thanksgiving vacation, and uh, I was sitting there holding uh, my uh, my uh, margarita. uh, No, my my son. Oh, okay, uh, different. uh, Yeah, yeah. This this story took a very different turn. (laughs) And I was just thinking about, you know, some of the v- divisive things that have been going on in the campaign and and it, it really, um, you know, holding my little Jewish boy in, in my arms, rocking him to sleep. I just couldn't believe that, like, our country was taking this kind of turn. And so I fired that tweet off as I was rocking him to sleep because, you know, I'm an editor at a New York publication and that's what you do. You know, the, I don't regret sending the tweet. What I do think is that if you're going to take swings, you might as well take, like, Full big swings, <laughs> full big considered swings, and also, I mean, the idea that like Harry Kurtz, who got fired for the, from the Daily Beast for any number of um, uh, war crimes against journalism, is like <laughs> critiquing me as a fucking joke. Right. I, I, I'm curious though. Like, this is um, I don't know. This is something that that you're seeing at at other outlets where you know someone on the right, maybe some conservative media troll, digs up a tweet from 2013. Uh, in context or out of context, and then comes after a reporter. Um, this happened to Caitlin Collins. You know, okay, say, look, saying, look, look, look. all publishers and all editors, if you fall for this trick, yeah, it's so on I want, you. So, yeah, I wanted to, to ask you about it because it's like obviously like she tweeted homophobic things in college. and um, But at the same time, like let's say someone comes after your reporter uh, who tweeted something slightly – racist in 2011, and it's maybe out of context, maybe not, but it's a bad tweet. Um, what do you do? Do you respond? And do you punish that reporter? I mean, of course, this is like hypothetical, but like, this is something that all editors are now dealing with. Um, no, why not? Let's take it out of the realm of hypothetical. Okay. Let's put it like in the realm of the real. Okay, so like, okay. let's say Kate and Col- Caitlin Collins. Well, here, so I'll, I'll keep You're it. Make Jeff it Zucker. I'll, I'll make it totally concrete. Okay. So the Daily Beast had uh, for a long time a columnist named Joy Reid, who also has a show on MSNBC. Uh, Joy Reid, um, you know, there was a bunch of like blog posts that were dug up about her that were bad. They were right. definitely bad. Right. And she apologized for the first tranche of those, and we said, okay, these are from 10 years ago or whatever, 10-plus years ago. Judging someone on their bad blog post when they were a talk radio host, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be fooled by the trick. No problem. Okay. Then fast forward, I don't know, six months or something like that, and a second tranche came up. Right, and now she says she got hacked. Right. And now she says it wasn't her. It's the shaggy defense. It wasn't me. Sure. And so we interrogated that response, that 
you know, claimed that she was hacked. And we put our best cybersecurity reporter on it, who Kevin Polson, who's himself is a former hacker. And, um, you know, within 24 hours, he was able to prove that that claim was nonsense. And so then we, you know, cut ties with Joy Reid, not because of the bad blog posts, but because, you know, she hadn't owned up to an apology. Right, but, the, so, but that was, I mean, the Joy Reid case, that was sort of its own thing because it was, you know, it was obviously the cover-up. I mean, it was, it was a ridiculous claim that she had been hacked. And, and even though she sort of apologized for it, to this day, still sort of MSNBC, I don't think, has been fully forced to reckon with the fact that she's never exactly admitted that she wasn't hacked. But let's say you were, you know, the, the president of CNN and it's, it's, you know, it's a reporter's tweet. I mean, do, do you respond when, when someone's not saying they were hacked? I mean, they did it, right? But it's a completely bad faith attack. Um, how do you, I mean, how, how do you deal with that? It's something that I think a lot of editors think about these days. <laughs> yeah, they really shouldn't be. No. I mean, yeah. Just it, don't respond, don't engage. Yeah, just don't respond or just tell them, hey, look, we're going to stand by our reporter. Without getting into the details, um, as you can imagine, the ultra-right trolls try to pull this trick on our reporters all the time, and we just kind of laugh at them. Yeah. What is your stance about, I mean, the Times, BuzzFeed has a social media policy, has, mm -hmm. you know, uh, feels strongly about what its reporters can and can't say on Twitter. Really? Oh, yeah. Like what? Um, we have a social media policy. I mean, we can't be like, and this has burned pe uh, people at BuzzFeed in, in the past. You know, it's like if you tweet something super, people have tweeted something partisan or. Oh. Um, okay, and, here, here's our general rule. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Our general rule is, A, you know, your reporters, not cheerleaders. So don't be an open partisan. B, don't do something that, I mean, obviously don't do anything that's like hate speech or, you know, in any way, um, you know, is going to, um, offend a group because of its, you know, ethnicity or uh, uh, gender or what have you. Then C is don't get your fellow reporters in trouble, right? Like right. don't tweet something dumb that's going to jam up. The beat reporter on whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like just don't be an asshole. Right, and, be a good colleague. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, I think that leaves a lot of room for, you know, having fun and for voicing one's personal opinions, and for also being a good reporter. I, I, I just don't see a lot of tension there. And in fact, like, I can't believe we're talking about it this much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think it's like the Times released their their new social media policy and was like, I can't believe we're doing this again. Like, what reporters can and can't say on Twitter. It's like it, we're having this debate in 2018. It's I know, and it's just like, look, I mean, the best example is like, who's the best White House reporter at the Times right now? Maggie Haberman. Who's right. got the most lit... Twitter feed of anybody at the Times, Maggie Haberman. Right. So obviously those two things are not intention. In fact, I would argue that in the Trump era, like, you know, they sometimes go in hand in hand. Right. All right. We are going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back with Noah Shackman right after this. A decade ago, during experiments on board the space shuttle Columbia, Merck scientist Paul Reichert discovered conditions that crystallize a specific protein. By studying these crystals, Paul and his team determined all new ways to improve the storage of structurally fragile medicines, devising life-saving drug delivery methods. Paul is just one of many Merck scientists dedicated to inventing for life. See why we invent at Merck.com slash inventing for life. And we're back with Noah Shackman. I wanted to ask... Um, you know, since I've covered the media business at uh, BuzzFeed and before at the Wall Street Journal, uh, one of the things that I re always remember about um, The Beast is, like, 
that is always emphasized to media reporters on the business side is like a lack of reliance on Facebook. That's always been sort of a big thing. I'm curious now, so a lot of publishers in the past few months have been struggling with Facebook changing its algorithm. And so it made me think, you know, this is something that you guys have harped on for years, and and maybe you were slightly ahead of of the competitors. But I'm curious, have you seen like a big traffic dip, uh, like some of your competitors because of Facebook algorithm tweak? Or do you feel like you were, I don't know, uh, immune to some of the bad changes in the digital media business over the past few months? So look, overall, our traffic is way up over last year. So while Facebook has gone down as a as a percentage of traffic. Um, what percentage it, of traffic does it make up for you guys now? Minimal. I mean, it's, it's pretty small. Uh, I actually don't have the figure off the yeah, top of my yeah. head because that's how important it is. Yeah, look, uh, we always viewed with skepticism the idea that you should surrender your content for free to a to any third party, but especially one, you know, one run by a uh, Android wearing human skin like Facebook. And so, you know, I, I, we just never played that game. Similarly, you know, um, uh, your friend Ben Smith and I, uh, you know, have long had a difference of opinion about uh, whether homepages are, are important, right? And we've always felt like homepages were important. They're a statement of values. They're a statement of, of editorial priorities. And, and you know, when done right, they, sh- they can be fun. And so we've always put a premium on our homepage too. So it's made us like a little bit retro, but, you know, it, we think it served us well. Where do you – I mean, where do you um, – now that we're kind of we're, – we're taping this right before the, the midterms, but we're about to gear up again. Like where, where are you – devoting resources in the next, I don't know, 18 months. I mean, are you, do you guys feel like you're... We're going to pivot to video. Pivot to video, great. All Um, video. All all podcasts. Yep. You know, I guess, yeah, where do you, where do you sort of see like the business outlook going forward as to, as to what, what are your priorities, where to, where to devote resources? Yeah. um, Look, we're pretty happy with where we are. We think we're headed in the right direction. How how big is, is the newsroom now? How big is the newsroom? It's like 40-ish is the newsroom and, you know, equivalent number on the business side, pretty much. I think I'm not supposed to talk a bunch about internals because uh, the Daily Beast is owned by ISC, which is a public company. Oh, I'm and, getting to that. Don't worry. Yeah, okay, cool. But, you know, what I'd note is that um, I think the statistic I'm allowed to talk about is that revenue in the second quarter, because that's the last one in which the earnings report mentioned the Daily Beast, was up like 66%. So we're doing, you know, I think we're doing good journalistically and I th- and we're, we're making moves uh on revenue. And so, you know, we're pretty happy with where we are. I think what we're not going to do is we're not going to try to like, if this is your question, it may not be, but we're not going to try to like radically expand and grow super big or like, you know, turn ourselves around and become something that we aren't. I think we're going to keep doing what we do and what we're trying to, and what we find is that, you know, over time, we just try to get people more into being like reading the Daily Beast every day. And the more that happens, the better it is for us, and 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 we think that we deliver a great daily experience, and and so we're trying to in, you know get more folks to do that. Right. So you've been you've been at the Daily Beast since 2014, right? Correct. And how so you were sort of the number two guy behind John Avalon, and mm-hmm. he left. And so how long have you been running the the show? Uh, since May. Since May. In my mind, like it's only been a decade of Daily Beast, but I feel like you do kind of have these three eras. Like Tina Brown started it, sort of that era, John's era, and now. You're in charge. Like, what do you? What do you see as your sort of view and outlook, and and um, what what kind of daily beast do you want to have versus the sort of prior eras? I mean, is it is it a continuation, or is it something that you, you know you have you have sort of a new a new target in mind? Yeah. Look, I'm. You know, John and I were, were partners for sure. You know, from 2014 on, and and so I think, you know, this thing we kind of um, 
help work on together, you know, I, I think that identity isn't going to change a lot more. Um, I do think you'll see us branching out into uh, different media formats. The Daily Beast has been definitely behind a little bit in terms of like the stuff that's not text-based. And so we're experimenting with a bunch of... So you are pivoting the video. Look, after all this, I know that's going to be the headline. Yeah, it's exactly. That's going to be awesome, dude. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're dipping our, you know, we're dipping our toe into a bunch of uh, different areas. Um, we're having some real success in Hollywood, too. Um, we've sort of unexpectedly become like a little bit of a hit factory for Hollywood. And so... Uh, yeah, we've so got you, a, the McDonald's... Yeah, but that's not the only one. I... Um, I'm you not sure how news? many. I'm not sure how many of these I can talk about, but okay. we've had like a bunch of stories in the last six months that it, have turned from articles into uh, and been optioned by Hollywood, right? You know, pretty much. And overnight. this is something that a lot of newsrooms are. I mean, BuzzFeed included are thinking of. You know, what are the new revenue streams that we can get? Yeah. Can we sell a story to a Netflix? I mean, BuzzFeed has done this. Can we sell an idea to you know to to, to some sort of TV player? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting kind of revenue stream for publishers. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's going to be, you know, humongous, but I think that's interesting. And then, you know, look, we're really big believers in this in this membership program of ours. And, you know, we're offering uh, members of Beast Inside, like, really exclusive, really top-end uh, material. And so, like, today, for example, like, we commissioned a poll with Ipsos right in advance of the midterms, and members are the only ones that are going to get it. How do your reporters feel about, as speaking as a reporter, about, like, going behind a paywall or, or versus not? I mean, is that something that I know I used to work at the Wall Street Journal, so I want as many people to read my things as possible. So, But I, but I get why you why the publisher wants people to pay for it. Yeah, so far, we haven't been, you know, there hasn't been huge tension around it. Um, you know, so far... It's so clear that, like, if you can get somebody to sign up because of a scoop, it it's so valuable to the to the company that that so far the reporters have been cool with it. And how I'm not sure if you can say, but like, how meaningful part of your business is that now? Is that? I, I mean, it's just getting started, but we've got you know thousands and thousands of subscribers already. I wanted to ask also, you know, so you mentioned IAC. It's chaired by the well-known uh, media mogul Barry Diller. How active is Barry in the business? I mean, how often do you talk to him and? What is that like? Yeah, so we've got um, monthly meetings uh, with him. And we talk about um, mix of business and editorial. Um, pivoting to video. Yeah, exactly. Um, pivoting to MySpace. And uh, and then, um, you know, email back and forth. But it's been pretty cool. There's like literally nobody smarter in the media business and nobody smarter about media. And I feel like I'm, about, I'm a corporate chill saying that, but it just in this case happens to be true. And, you know, it's been... I, I've got to see over the years that that um, he really uh, calls in no favors and pulls no fun, no punches. And um, he's not calling you up asking you to you know delete stories about his powerful friends. No, I mean like, <laughs> dude, no. <laughs> he's like, giving you tips about his powerful friends. No, it's not like that. But I'm just look uh, as you can imagine, Barry Diller has a lot of powerful friends, and they voice their opinions about the Daily Beast. But it really um, hasn't trickled down to us at all. It's 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 actually been a pleasure. One of the things, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that you guys view covering campaigns a little differently. I'm not sure that do, do you put reporters, you know, on the trail. And, and now that we're, you know, day after the midterms, gearing up for 2020. Shoot me. Um, <laughs> are you? How are you thinking about? your plan for 2020. We're yeah. thinking about it. All newsrooms are, th are staffing up or kind of allocating resources towards 2020. And um, as an editor, this is going to be the big story of the next two years. Um, what, what, what's your outlook on that? Yeah, we, we've traditionally shied away from like 
the traditional campaign coverage of like, you know, candidate says X at rally Y. I, I don't know how much that – how much value that really brings to a uh, – to a, a reader. I think we'll be really honestly doing more investigative work on these candidates. There's so many candidates. There's going to be so much dirt to dig on all these guys. And uh, there's going to be a lot of great behind-the-scenes power struggles that are that are going to be really fun to report on. So I, I, my instinct is to go that way. Do you think – I mean, you know, now that the attention is kind of swinging back to the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like as an editor you're trying to I – mean, do you think next year is going to be like the past two years where it's all Trump all the time or – you know, do you think it's going to be uh, going back to some sort of? I don't know. I'm just curious how the media landscape changes when Trump might not be the story of the day. That it's going to be some primary battle or some something on the yeah. Democrat. Or is he going to be narrating that in real time? And he's still going to be the story. Like, yeah. So I think. Please predict what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'll predict this. I think next year may be the craziest year yet. Oh God. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, but I think it's true. I think that if the Democrats take control of either house, which we'll see what happens. Yeah, when this airs, I think it'll probably— Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to really open up the investigations against the president, and there's so many avenues. So I think that's going to be crazy. I think you're going to have—you know, there's still a lot of road left on the federal— law enforcement investigations into the Trump circle. That's going to be crazy. And then you're going to have like approximately 942 uh, candidates for president, and that's going to be crazy. Like Michael Avenatti? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we uh, I think we might have drained that boil. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I, I, you know, talking to folks beforehand about what I should ask you, and uh, somebody suggested that they feel like you guys have taken up the mantle of Gawker a little bit, like that there now that there isn't, that player in the media ecosystem, there have been so many times where people are like, oh, like, you know, what if Gawker were around to cover this story? And, uh, do you, I mean, do you feel like you try to fill some of that, that, that void of that sort of style? Because you guys, I mean, you're, you're willing to cover the things that other outlets might find too insidery, but it's like if you can get a scoop on it or if you can, you know, if it's an interesting story. Um, Look, you- I, I think that we like to embrace the gonzo and that, Gawker was an inheritor of that Gonzo uh, spirit that didn't originate with Gawker, but that they carried that mantle for a little while. And we really like the Gonzo. We really like the weird. We really like the fun. And we we don't give that many fucks. We don't give zero fucks, but we don't give that many fucks. How do you uh, feel about, you know, like the sort of ever-present, like, legal threats that are hanging over. Yeah, they're for real, um, man. And, you know, you guys real. take big swings. You've made mistakes. Yep. Uh, you, you know, you correct them, but you've made you know, you've made some big mistakes. And a lot of newsrooms have. But, like, how do you think about that? I mean, how do, how do you view that? Yeah, look, the legal threats are definitely out there. Luckily, we're owned by, you know, one of these giant globo corps. And they have a, you know, really crack team of lawyers. And so we've really – there's been uh, very uh, little successful litigation against us. Yeah. All right. Well, that was pretty painless. We, we established that the Daily Beast is pivoting to video. Yeah. Um, and diverting all of its 2020 resources towards covering Michael Avenatti's campaign. Yes. Av- uh, yeah, that is and, true. And um, that about does it. So, um, Noah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> 
Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> oh my god. Um, okay, great, amazing. How about I interview you for a little yeah, while? Go, go for it. Yeah, you have what, any questions? Yeah, what the hell, Pearlberg? You know, like I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. Hit me with it. What yeah, you, yeah I, you know, like here's my first question. Okay, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> was that good? Was that a bad interview? No, no, no it was great. Awesome. Okay. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> thank you, Noah, so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> And thanks to you all for listening. Um, But before we go one more time, please tell somebody about this show. And if you want to tell me what you thought of my guest hosting, you can tweet me at Pearlberg, and you can email me at steven.pearlberg at buzzfeed.com. Make sure to see Noah's work at The Daily Beast. Thanks to our sponsors and to Cadence 13 and Vox Media for selling those ads. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to the producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon. Merck scientist Daria Hazuda has failed countless times. But from those failures, medical invention was born. From years of trial and error researching infectious diseases, Dr. Hazuda has helped to develop medicines that help treat HIV and hepatitis C. For the next generation of inventors, Dr. Hazuda's passion, coupled with her commitment to eradicating the world's toughest diseases, proves that failure is a teachable moment. Daria is just one of the many Merck scientists dedicated to inventing for life. See why we invent at merck.com slash inventing for life.